Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Neil Mackay who is a multi-award winning investigative journalist, a newspaper executive, a non-fiction author and also a fiction author, a radio broadcaster and a filmmaker. Neil has won around two dozen national and international awards for his newspaper journalism, while his last film, An Investigation into the Rise of the Far Right in Europe and America, was nominated for a BAFTA. His book, The War and Truth, which investigated the roots of the invasion of Iraq, was published in the UK and the USA, while he has written for The Sunday Herald, The Observer, Scotland and Sunday, Ireland's Sunday Tribune, Australia's The Age, and most newspapers in Northern Ireland. Neil has also written two novels, All the Little Guns Went Bang Bang Bang, which is set in Antrim in Northern Ireland in the early 1980s, and The Wolf Trial, a historical epic set in 16th century Germany, and inspired by the true story of a man whose crimes were so great he was thought to be a werewolf. It has been described as Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose meets Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, and if that doesn't make you immediately rush out and get the book, then I don't know what would. Neil, welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me along. Now, it's an impressive CV, and no doubt in the course of the podcast we'll chat about it, but if I start with it, the last thing I mentioned, which was the novel The Wolf Trial, which I think I remember at the time getting in touch with you when I read it, it absolutely blew me away. I thought it was a stunning piece of, of writing, and I'm, I'm hoping that there will be more novels coming from you at some point. Well, yes, there is. I'm actually I'm, I'm thinking of doing sort of like a sequel to The Wolf Trial. If you remember, um, the framing story of the Wolf Trial centers on a, an academic based in Glasgow University in the 1600s, who, for the reasons that the novel is written, ends up fleeing Germany, which is the site of the Wolf Trial, and comes kind of into an involuntary exile in Glasgow in the late 1500s. Um, I'm thinking of picking up the story of, of that character, Willie Lessinger, the German academic, and, well, I suppose you would call him, yeah, he's a kind of early, er, he's kind of mid- medieval Sherlock Holmes, in a way, and maybe letting him loose in Scotland in our medieval period and see what he gets up to here. Maybe he might bump into King James before he goes down to London. Um, <laughs> so lots of ideas. And, and I've also got, a, there's a couple of other, I was thinking of um, an idea, I'm sort of working on an idea of a children's novel inspired by lockdown. I think lots of writers are working on lockdown novels, but I've always wanted to write uh, write for children and I had a had a few ideas there. So there's quite a number of fictional um, ideas kicking around. I'm also working on a non-fiction book, which is about contemporary politics. We'll see how that goes, which might have a, a double up documentary that goes alongside it, Touchwood. Because obviously, again, I touched on the fact that I mean, the experience you've had, the breadth of writing platforms in terms of the journalism, in terms of your non-fiction books, and obviously the films as well. Would that be kind of your first love in terms of either that investigative journalism, whether it's in film or in print? To be honest, I mean, I've made my career and, and I've paid the rent and the mortgage with um, newspaper journalism primarily. But my first love is, is writing creatively, is, is fiction. You know, I'm the kind of person, I've been writing poetry since I was about 12 years old, mostly for 
girls I was trying to make fall in love with me <laughs> unsuccessfully or successfully sometimes, <laughs> which I've never shown anyone apart from the, the women in question. So yeah, my first passion would be literature. I just happened to come from, you know, a, a working class family in Northern Ireland and I needed to make money. And uh, oftentimes fiction and um, poetry and drama doesn't really pay the bills. And um, it's newspaper work and TV and radio and so forth, which has paid the bills for me. But my real passion is writing creatively because that's what's good for the soul. And I, I, sometimes I love, sometimes, particularly when it's books that I like, you know, when, it, when I mentioned that comparison at the start, Umberto Echoes, The Name of the Rose, and then American Cycle, two books that I absolutely love. But mm. just that on, its, on its own, The Wolf Trial, and I genuinely would recommend that book for anyone to read, because I just think... Wasn't it's too up. messed up for you, no? Didn't give you too many nightmares? I mean, it was just one of those books you just, you know, like you occasionally you just get a book you just can't put down, and I just think it, I was totally gripping. Before we go into your recommendations, that's, that's one from me. Oh, that's kind. Thank you. Obviously, in the terms of the, the podcast, I like to take you on your, your literary journey of your uh-huh. life. And so we go back to the, the, the first category, which is your favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen is Dracula by Bram Stoker. Oh, I just love that book so much. I can't count how many times I've read that book, Paul. I remember first time I read it, well, first of all, I was a Hammer Horror movie kid in the 70s. You know, I'm, I was born in 1970, giving my age away there. I still think of myself as, you know, young and cool, but really I'm not. Well, I remember growing up in the, in the 70s, the Hammer Double Bill on a Saturday night was quite literally the best three hours of the week for me. Because, you know, I would stay up, beg my parents to let me stay up when I was about 10 or 11. And you'd get the black and white Universal movie or the RKO movie first, you know, like, I don't know, the Frankenstein or the Bride of Frankenstein or the Bella Lugosi Dracula. And then you get the Technicolor Hammer film that came afterwards, you know, with Peter Cushion and Christopher Lee reprising Van Helsing and Dracula. They just, it absolutely... I find, you know, horror is actually good for the soul, I think. It's great to be scared. It's cathartic. It gets rid of all those horrible pent-up emotions. And I'm still a horror movie addict. I'm actually thinking of writing a book about horror movies. I've been speaking to a few publishers and folk in the in the literary world about maybe trying to do something about horror films. Because quite recently, actually, for The Herald, I wrote a piece about the significance of horror movies when it comes to contemporary culture. I was writing about how if we think of some of the greatest horror movies today, particularly the work of like Jordan Peele with things like Get Out or uh, movies like Midsommar or, or Parasite, you know, which won the Oscar. These books are really tapping into zeitgeisty political issues, be it Trump or Me Too or Black Lives Matter. Horror for me really has always got under the skin of contemporary culture and politics. In a way, frankly, I feel bad for saying this, but in a way, frankly, that even literary fiction doesn't. I sometimes think that this um, seemingly trashy, disposable form of pop culture, the horror movie, does so much more than high culture sometimes when it comes to investigating society and, and what makes us tick. But sorry, to get back to Dracula, that's where my love came. So one of the first books that I really remember reading, what's first adult books rather that I remember reading was Dracula. So after I kind of left behind that childhood period of kids literature, I, re- I remember getting a copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula when I was about 11, probably just before I went into big school. I'm just absolutely falling in love with it. The first chapter of Dracula, I think, is just among the best travel writing, fictional travel writing that's ever been written. It's Jonathan Harker's journey to Transylvania through the Carpathian Mountains. And it's just got these great scenes where, you know, he's eating chicken hendel, which is this kind of paprika dish, and he's drinking the local wine, and he's thirsty, and he's, he falls asleep, and he has these nightmares, and, you know, he meets the, all the kind of weird local characters. It's just so evocative. And then Stoker goes on to write, I mean, how did he do it? How did you create? Have you ever thought about creating a figure as culturally significant as Dracula. It's just astonishing. You know, that character will live till the end of human history. 
Because what I was going to say is actually quite, what I find is quite interesting, particularly when you look and if you ever read anything about Dracula, and it kind of touches on what you were saying in terms of horror in the cinema, that for some reason Dracula seems to be a, a story that filmmakers down through the ages have tapped into. And it's been partly because of its success on the big screen that's kind of, I think, maintained its popularity as a book as well. Well, if you look at how Dracula's been interpreted over the age, so firstly in the Victorian era, there was this idea that was it about syphilis, you know, syphilis coming through society, this kind of infection that was getting into the bloodstream of, of society. It's been interpreted as a comment on migration. You know, you can p- interpret it as a comment even now. It's a comment about male violence. It's ever-changing, ever-adaptable, like the best literature. We think about some of the ancient myths and legends, which I think we might talk about later as well. These stories just live forever. And that's what I find so impressive about Dracula is that it's a towering feat of imagination and it's a, it's a cultural landmark, really. Even in terms of, its, of the way it dealt with sexual issues, when the first uh, edition of Dracula came out, it was bound in a, in a yellow cover. Now, yellow in the Victorian period was straight away a real signifier that something was a little bit sexually loose. You know, it was kind of... Um, it was associated with the kind of avant-garde, Oscar Wilde part of society. So Dracula is really daring for its period. If you think about the female characters in Dracula, for example, self-evidently they're sentimentalized and it's a really kind of patriarchal book if you want to use the language of today. But the women figures are also really, really ballsy. Like Mina Harker, she's out there earning a living for herself. You know, it's a woman in the 1890s who's learning new technology, working for herself, She's the salvation of her family when it comes to picking up the ruins of her husband, Jonathan Harker. So it's really, it's, I mean, it's really clever. And it's also brilliant in, its, in the way it interpolates technology into the book as well. You know, there's blood transfusions. There's the early uh, phonograph where Dr. Seward records his chapters on the old phonographic recording, wax cylinders. It's just such a clever book. So atmospheric, so thrilling. And I just, I can't, I, I, I still read it at least, I'd say once, once every 18 months, I'll return to it. You know, it's funny, I think I'm maybe like, maybe like a lot of people where I'm, it's part of uh, popular culture and always has been. So I know this, you know, that way you know the story, you know the uh-huh. name. I've actually not read the book. Oh, read it, Paul. Similar read to it. like Frankenstein as well. I've got these books in the house that I've... Well, Frankenstein's different because it is a harder read. Firstly, because A, it's written almost a century earlier. It's written in the early 1800s rather than the late 1800s. And also, well, Mary Shelley's credit, my God, only 19 when she wrote it. Again, a 19-year-old woman creating such a totemic figure, which again, like Stroker's Dracula, will exist to the end of time. It will be infinitely reinterpreted for centuries to come. But she also deals with huge philosophical issues about, you know, metaphysical issues about the meaning of individuality and free will. And, you know, she's taken on really totemic issues about science. She's pro- it's probably the first, the first novel, probably, which has that technophobic element of horror in it that we now see. You know, you even see it reflected now in, in films like, you know, those digital horror movies where there's some awful thing happening on, on the internet. She's kind of an early version of that because what's, what's freaking her out is our, our inability to control science. Which, if you think about climate change and stuff, is a rather she's a rather astute young woman, and she's also quite poetic writer. Whereas um, Stoker's just get that story out because he's this man from the stage. He learned his craft as a in, in the London theatre houses, so he comes at it from a more populist view, where she's more poetic. Self evidently, you know, she was married to the poet Shelley. So two very different books, but equally totemic, but both worth a read. But go for Dracula first. You know, it's, I think it's quite often the case with books that would be considered now, you know, like classics that sometimes. It's amazing how many you know of, you know the story, but you maybe haven't actually read them. Yeah, and totally. I'm guilty of that sometimes as well. Oh, I think we all are, but then we live in a culture that's 
you know, what do they say? Aristotle's probably the last man who read every book that was ever written at his time. How could any of us now ever be across culture? Because it's so diverse and fractured. You know, we live in such a fractured culture now where, you know, I could listen to music, read books, watch films that you literally never do. And that's only a, a very modern phenomenon, we think, with the with the advent of streaming culture from Spotify to Netflix. Back when me and you were kids, three channels, the bestseller list, and what was on at the local movie house. And that had a unifying a sense to culture, but also maybe a little bit suffocating sense to culture. So I think what we've what we've lost in unity, we've made up for in diversity. You, you mentioned the fact that you read Dracula maybe about once every eighteen months. And is it one of those books that you get something new of, or is it like kind of returning to an old friend and you know you kind of know what you're going to get, but that, that's the appeal of it. There's lots of books I do return to and find something new. Like, like The Great Gatsby is a, another one of my books. I think for any young man in the, in the kind of mid-80s, which is when I become, I sort of fell in love with the written word. Um, for every young person who wanted to be a writer at those points, people like Fitzgerald, where, you know, that was a kind of pinnacle of writing because it's such a beautifully written book. I mean, it is like reading poetry when you, and Fitzgerald was hugely inspired by Keats when he wrote Gatsby. So I'll return to Gatsby. Often I taught Gatsby. I had a brief period where I was teaching um, English literature and I taught Gatsby for a while. So I'm really, really familiar with the text. I can still return to it now and still find new inventive things in it, not just as comments about American culture, but just to marvel at the way the man writes. I mean, some extraordinary, probably the most beautiful sentences ever written in the English language are the last few paragraphs of The Great Gatsby. Books like Gatsby, I'll return to and find something new. Dracula is literally comfy slippers. It's like, I'm just going to enjoy this literary mug of Horlicks and get my tartan slippers on. One of the many things that I've enjoyed about doing this podcast and, you know, what, what you love is always subjective in any part of culture, whether it's literature, mm-hmm. films, etc. But I remember recording two episodes of this podcast back to back. And one week, a person picked The Great Gatsby as the book they'd recommend to anyone. The following week, the person picked the same book as they couldn't be paid to read again. I can see why. I can see why people don't like Gatsby because it's a really slippery beast. And I think the reason why I came to love it so much is that I first read it when I was doing my English literature O-level. You know, being a kid who was obsessed with writing and literature and writers, I, I took it apart. You know, I really like put it on an anatomy table and d- dissected the Gatsby when I was 15, when I first read it. And then I kind of, one of my specialities at university was American literature. So I studied Fitzgerald quite intensely. And then I went on to teach uh, Gatsby for a while, as I said. So I'm incredibly familiar with it. But it is a very slippery and difficult text. It's, it's probably, I think, apart from his short stories, it would be Fitzgerald's easiest text. I mean, Tender as the Night is not an easy read, I think. But I think if you approach Gatsby not looking for a movie, yeah, I famously think Gatsby can't be filmed. No matter, it doesn't matter if it's Leonardo DiCaprio or Robert Redford, you can't turn Gatsby into a film. That film with um, DiCaprio, what everyone raves about, I thought it was terrible. Uh, you know, it looked great, but it fell into the trap of actually what Gatsby was talking about. The whole point of Gatsby is look at American society, it's style over substance. Where's the soul of this? That was exactly the problem with the movie. But uh, yeah, I think approach Gatsby in it with the mindset of just loving the language, and that's what uh, the reward is. Well, if I can take you on from Dracula and on to the second question, which is your favourite book from kind of teenage student formative years, and it was three authors you actually you ended up choosing just in terms oh, yeah. of the book. So it was Hubert Selby Jr., Charles Bukowski, or Kurt Vonnegut. All three of those guys, and I'm sorry they're all men. There's a myriad of amazing, brilliant uh, female writers out there, but these these three writers just really chimed with me when I was a kid uh, and when I was becoming a young man. I'll, I can go through them for what, what they do for me. 
Hubert Selby Jr. is just a dark genius. I remember just as the film Last Exit to Brooklyn was coming out, do you remember that in the late 80s? What an astonishing film. Jeez, I mean, I just if anyone hasn't watched that film and you want to be shocked and you want to trip into the reality of working class life, go watch that film and then start reading everything that Hubert Selby Jr. has ever done. I knew that film was coming out and as a bit of a, a kind of literary and, and, and cinema freak as in my late teens or mid-teens, I wanted to read the book before the film came out, you know, because I hate reading books after I've watched the film. So I read that and I can remember just being horrified by what this guy had written. Honest to God, I can remember at one point I got the book, I was about halfway through, there's a bit in it where there's this horrendous act of violence carried out against an old lady. And I lifted the book and I physically bit it. I'm like, Arr! and then threw it across the room in total outrage. I said to myself, I'm never reading that again. I got some, I don't know, some moral majority kicked for the one time in my life. Anyway, threw the book across the room. The next day I picked it up, finished it. And I will say to my dying day, I think it is one of the greatest works of literature ever written. Again, like Dracula, right, like Gatsby, I come back to it all the time. I mean, if we go into the sort of esoteric side of writing, Nobody does the first-person narrator better than Selby Jr. He just dips into the, the mind of readers. He'll go from third-person to first-person and back again, and you don't even see the join, which, I mean, is technically almost impossible. He's just a master at that. But what that really means is what you're, you're getting a true glimpse of a human soul, the way he slips into someone's mind. His betrayal of the working class, his betrayal of the truth about the use of drugs, his betrayal of the truth about the, the relationships between men and women. He, is, he strips himself and humanity back, not just to the muscle, to the bone. He's just so revealing. And so, um, so what, what age would you have been when you picked that book up, bit it, and then, and then finished it? Probably about 16, 16, 17, something like that. I think the movie came out in like 88. Did that shock you, having that, you know, even at that young age, having that sort of visceral reaction to a piece it, it of literature? It shocked me, and also, yes, it totally, well, I mean, no, the level of cruelty and sadism in Selby Jr.'s work is something to behold, but it's not done in this grotesque, video nasty way. He's showing you horror, which is kind of what I did in the, in the Wolf Trial. A lot of people who read my book, The Wolf Trial, thought, oh my God, the violence is just so much. What I'm trying to do is show the reality of violence. And I think I learned that at the knee of Selby Jr. because he puts the camera on the violence and a lot of people are a bit mimsy about it as writers and, they, and then they look away. He doesn't. He just keeps the camera on what's happening and doesn't take it off, you know, until it's over. And then he'll keep it on and show you the aftermath, whether it's about criminality or sexuality or uh, the world of drugs or just the world of toxic masculinity. He's relentless. He is brilliant on exposing what's up with men. Um, and, you know, as a young guy growing up, I always knew that there was something amiss with the culture that m males were being brought up in. You know, don't cry, play football, fight, fall over drunk, that kind of thing. There's some, there was something missing in terms of the, the soul of male of, of uh, masculinity. And Hubert Selby Jr. puts his finger right on that. In fact, in his book called The Demon, which is, um, I think maybe... It's, it's a much darker read, I think, than anything he does. It says a lot for Selby Jr. In The Demon, what he does is get inside the mind of what well, fundamentally is one of the worst misogynists who's ever lived. And it's the slow disintegration of this man under the weight of his own misogyny, the cognitive dissonance. How can this man continue with his attitudes and his treatment of women and still kind of call himself a human being? Honestly, one of the best books I've ever read in terms of preparing me to be a decent man as a young man. Because it's like, it's a textbook. Don't do this. Don't behave like that. He's the master. He's, he's, he's a stylistic master and there's a spirituality to him, which is really important. Vonnegut, on the other hand, to me, equally spiritual in a sort of 
in, in an anarchic way. It's about the freedom of just playing with the world as a writer and just playing with crazy ideas, you know, from Slaughterhouse Five to the Sirens of Titan. You know, this is a guy who's just, not only is he having fun, but he's kind of saying to you, See, the world out there is bonkers. It's ridiculous. So just have fun while you're here, for whether it's, you know, you know, the 70 years if you're lucky. You know that, that line that always goes through, Slaughterhouse-Five, so it goes. That's one of Aye. my favourite lines in literature because of what it, what it means. And just but you actually through, see it repeated so often as well and by other writers. Yeah, but I just love what, he, what, what it signifies in that book. Yes, and, it's just, and it's stuck with me all, every time I read it. And I just, I love that. And sometimes you, see, you know, I find myself sometimes I'll say it to someone, but then if they, if they don't know the cultural reference, they'll be like, what are you talking about? And then the other thing about, about Vonnegut is just his artwork, that mad, crazy, childlike artwork that he just sometimes throws in. You'll be flicking through, I don't know, Breakfast of Champions or something, and then you come across this ridiculously silly artwork that he's done, but it's massively endearing. He's like, if Hubert Selby Jr. is your the dark, dark, masculine figure who you who's going to teach you about the darkness of the world and what not to do, Vonnegut is like just the lovely, cool, crazy, hippie uncle who you want to hang out with for the rest of your life. Where does Bukowski sit between the two of them then? Just the maniac friend you really shouldn't have, but you like hanging out with, I think. Because <laughs> I remember when I first read Bukowski, I'm like, whoa, what? What's, what's going on here? This guy is like beyond... I think what I what I admire most about Bukowski is his absolute bravery in confronting this, the failure of himself. You know, people talk now about the Scandinavian writer Nausgaard, you know, his books about the intimacy of his lives, like My Struggle is the famous one that he wrote, obviously with a kind of quite icky riff on the title of Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. But what Nausgaard is obviously doing in those books is peeling back the skin on his life and on his family. Bukowski literally reveals everything about himself. You know, his sexual failures. I think it's Ham on Rye. I think so. It's where, where he talks about, as a kid, his flirtation with Nazism in pre-war America. You know, he talked about his, his childhood or sort of late childhood, early teenage, mid-teenage years in Los Angeles in the 1930s, late 1930s, early 40s. You know, and he just talks about being an out-and-out Nazi. Self-evidently, he caught himself on as he grew up. What's astonishing about that is, could you imagine any other writer having the bravery in the 1970s when he was 80s, when he was writing this, just to even say that that had been, you know, that that had happened to him? If we think of one of the great masters of confronting Nazism, Gunter Grass with Tin Drum, well, when, the, when, it, when it came to pass that we, we discovered in his later years that he had been a member of the Hitler Youth, like every single boy and girl in Nazi Germany, because you were compelled to, everyone was astonished because Grass had never talked about it. And I suppose you can understand why, a horrible period of his life. And also, frankly, historically, every child of his age was compelled to do it. But someone like Bukowski just confronts that failure, that, that horror, that, that secret shame right away. It doesn't have any problem in bearing his soul. You know, he was not a nice guy. Let's get, get that right. His treatment of women was bloody disgraceful. But if you're looking for a bard of the underworld, he's, he's the guy to go to. And he's got just got, there's something about him where when you're a teenager, that kind of dark, Glamour is kind of weirdly attractive when you're young and foolish. You know, I, could, I look at Bukowski completely differently now. I still think he's an incredible writer. I still applaud his bravery in confronting his own failures and his own, I suppose, shamefulness isn't a right word. It's not right to throw shame in anyone, but it's the best word I can come up with. So his own kind of shameful past. So, yeah, I mean, there's three outsiders. And I'm really, I've always been attracted to outsiders. They just happen to be outsiders who made it. You know, so I think some of the best art is still art that's really nobody talks about and cares about. And it's exploring parts of the world that conventional, I would say, middle class, so bored with middle class writing, you know, it just puts me to sleep. I hate, you know, it's another book by another middle class writer writing about an affair with a middle class writer. Just, Jesus, stop it. You know, I'd much prefer these 
out there figures who probably are very difficult to deal with in our current culture of everyone watching every word they say and the whole cancellation for daring to pose questions or, or start uh, difficult debates. But more people should read them. There's a, f- a freedom and liberty in the rebellious view of the world that needs studied and also in some cases applauded, in some cases derided. But um, the world is much more richer and culture is much more richer for them than without them. Have you ever been curious? Because obviously if you read them, I always wonder sometimes with these sort of books that have that impact on you, sometimes it's, it's when you read them either in terms of your age or what stage of your life yeah. or what you're doing. And if you came to them, say, now, what the reaction would be and how you would view them compared to what you did when you were a young man? Well, I see that with, with books like Catcher in the Rye. I mean, I read that the same age that most people read that, 16, 17, I think it was, just before I went to university. Loved it. Great. I have to say it wasn't the best book ever. Holden Caulfield is a bit of a whiny irritant, if you ask me. I always did like his phrase about his hatred of phonies. That kind of chimed with me and has stayed with me for the rest of my life. I hate phonies and hypocrites. But yeah, I know mates of mine who've read Salinger in middle age and are just like, this is crap. And I'm like, I know you've read it at the wrong time, mate. Go back. You've been read it when you're 16. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Neil Mackay. Neil, we are on to the third book choice in the podcast, and that's a book that you'd recommend to anyone, and it's 2666 by Roberto Bolano. This is a cult book, right? It shouldn't be a cult book. It's hard to even explain this without me saying he reimagines the novel. This dude is going to take you on a journey the like of which you've never experienced. It's like, it's five novels in one. Basically what it is, it's a book that centers on uh, the femicides that happened in Mexico, or are still happening in Mexico, but which were really at the horrific peak in the late 90s, early 2000s. This is when over 500 women disappeared in and around the city of Ciudad Juarez on the border of uh, Mexico, on the Mexican side of the border with the United States. Subsequently, there's been a host of ideas about what happened to these women in an incredibly misogynistic and violent society where violence against women was common. Women were losing their lives wholesale anyway, which is ghastly. But also there's some belief that it might have been fueled by drug cartels. Horribly, it might have involved snuff movies, all sorts of stuff. There's some terrible um, theories about what happened in the Mexican femicides, which still continue to this day. But uh, Bolaño was focused very narrowly on the events that happened in Ciudad Juarez. So what he does is he takes us into this journey into the underworld of Mexico and the crimes committed against women, because it is a book which fundamentally at its heart is screaming in anger about the violence directed towards women in our societies. But it's wrapped up in a, there's a literary puzzle wrapped up in it as well, because as part of this journey, we're also, we're also taken on a, on a hunt for this missing, a missing writer who is connected way, way back to Nazi Germany. Um, so you have this kind of melding of the, the kind of Nazi period with the violence that's going on in America, which is all wrapped up in a hunt by these literary detectives to, to find this missing writer. No human being can do this book justice by describing it because you have to inhabit it. I mean, I'm listening to myself try to explain what this book is about to you, and it's difficult because it's five or six books in one. What I would say about this book is that, yes, so it definitely, it rewrites what the novel can do, I think. Nobody has done what he's done in terms of writing, I think, since, since Don Quixote was written and invented the novel. Bolaño is remarkable. He's a poet. He's a voice of rage. I mean, he does what Dickens does in terms of trying to record and be outraged against the horror of our society. I mean, his life itself is incredible. He's from Chile. He gets caught up in left-wing politics and has to flee the country because he's living under Pinochet. 
rocks up in uh, Mexico during a period of student rebellion, has to leg it from Mexico because he gets in trouble there, ends up in Barcelona, ekes out a living as a totally forgotten poet who nobody knew anything about. And he gets pancreatic cancer towards the end of his life. He's living in Barcelona in the 90s. Uh, gets pancreatic cancer and basically turns around to his wife and says, I've got to do something that leaves you and the kids some money because I don't think I'm going to be around much longer. He then writes a series of prose works, 2666, The Savage Detectives, an incredible book called Nazi Literature in the Americas, which pretends to be a, like a, a literary textbook on far-right writers in Latin America, but it's all made up. There's people who've read this work and thought it's a, it's a real academic text about all these kind of neo-Nazi writers or, or Nazis who fled Germany in the 40s and then were writers in the 60s in places like Peru or Chile. It's all made up, completely made up. And it's his way of kind of playing with history and using literature to interpret history and undermine how cultures proceed. The, the man is a remarkable genius. He died too young. He wrote 2666, which is huge, voluminous work. But I, I beg everyone, I know I haven't described it adequately. No one can do justice to Roberto Bolaño in explaining his work. You've got to read it. A poor scribe like me is never going to give it, never, never going to explain it properly. But just please, everyone listening, believe me, go read 2666. It'll change your life. It's funny, one of the, again, one of the previous podcast guests, a guy called Rog Glass. Oh, he, I know Rog. He edited my, he edited The Wolf Trial. Well, he picked that book as a book he couldn't be paid to read again, but not for the reasons that most people do. He, he thinks it's a work of genius, but having managed to read it once, he just didn't think he would ever be able to, to read it again. Because I think the book came out a year after Bolaro died. I'm not sure if he'd left advice to his kids. They should actually bring it out as five separate books and they would make more money, but I think it got put together as, as one massive well, the, the strange thing about Bolaño's literary estate is they keep finding books he's written. And as they keep being published, the value of the uh, cultural and artistic value of the work depreciates. Maybe someone is taking the notebooks of Bolaño and trying to turn them into some of the more recent uh, releases. But I think if readers read things like 2666 is his crowning masterpiece. And I think in years to come, it'll be in there with the pantheon of great world novels. You know, people will be talking about that in the same breath that they talk about Crime and Punishment or Bleak House. It is destined for immortal greatness, I think. So if people try that out, and then if they like it, go on to the Savage Detectives. And if they dig that, then maybe try Nazi literature in the Americas, because that's, that's just crazy, off-the-wall, wild art. But there's something incredibly significant and important about 2066. It's one of those intangible books, when you return to it, you go, oh, he's talking about that, actually. That's what he, it's not just he's talking about violence against women, but in, in, in another hand, he's, you know, he, can, he talks about, he's analysing how we, our obsessions with the Second World War period, for example. There's so, 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 so much. He's so, so gifted. Such a beautiful writer. So clever. So unlike Rog, who said he couldn't read it again, having read it once, if you if take it then you you have come back to it. It's mammoth. I've read it three times. I, I, I fancy, you know, it depends how much lockdown goes on again. We're back in our houses forever. Certainly, I'm, I'll, be, I'll be reading it soon. You couldn't read it every year because it takes up such a chunk of your life. I mean, it really does. First time I read it, I never basically put it down. Read it in the bath, read it on the tube, read it in a you know, anywhere I was, because it was like, what is this? It's one of those amazing books, which is just so enigmatic, so hypnotic, so intriguing. I, I couldn't leave it alone. It's like, um, if I could also recommend, uh, you know, another writer who's very like that, Shirley Jackson. Uh, people have now got to know Shirley Jackson through Netflix doing The Haunting of Hill House. But Shirley Jackson, to me, is, is like, She's as good as Bolaño, but the thing is that Bolaño hasn't got the recognition that Shirley Jackson's eventually got. 
equally such a sad life Shirley Jackson had. She married a fairly unpleasant husband, you know, who messed around behind her back with other women. And she was, I think she had, she had some mental problems, agoraphobia, and, you know, she didn't have a very pleasant life. But what a talent. She pours her pain into her writer. At the moment, I'm evangelizing to everybody because people are starting to jump on this Shirley Jackson bandwagon, which kind of annoys me. You know, it's like 20 years ago I was into Shirley Jackson. Now everyone's bloody talking about her. Gets my wick. But anyway, I'm telling everyone, go and read The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. The Lottery is a series of short stories, which if anyone is au fait with Shirley Jackson will know that The Lottery is probably her most famous piece of writing before the current bandwagon about her. The Lottery was a short story she wrote for The New Yorker, I think, in maybe the late 40s, early 50s. It horrified America when it came out. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. It's really short. And it's, all, it's the last story in this book called The Lottery and Other Short Stories. You need to read The Lottery and Other Short Stories in order because what she does is kind of like Bolaño where she and she totally invents her own mythology. And you have to get inside that Shirley Jackson mindset to really get her. And she plays with ideas like there's a recurring character in the lottery called James Harris. Sometimes he's the protagonist. Sometimes he's the nemesis. Sometimes he's the villain. Sometimes he just passes by on the street. Sometimes his name's just mentioned. Sometimes if there's a phone call, there's someone speaking to James and it's James Harris. Sometimes the only time you know James Harris is there is if you've read Shirley Jackson over and over and over again. And you know that this character, James Harris, wears a blue suit. So for example, in the very first story in the lottery, there's a character who wears a blue suit. That's James Harris. And it's like, what is she doing? What's she telling me? What is this weird mythology that Shirley's trying to un- un- unwrap? She is incredible, incredibly brilliant on-, on women in the 1950s when surrounded by material wealth, women were being slowly driven out of their mind by the constrictions of society. You know, another Hoover and you want to hang yourself. She's fantastic. Great on racism and that, that, the, the racism bubbling under an American culture in the 50s. I'd highly recommend The Lottery. You want to get a huge book, get 2666 by Bolaño. You want to get the sweet little masterful gem, get The Lottery. Or basically anything by Shirley Jackson, because she's just wonderful. So it's a couple of highly recommended authors. We mentioned earlier on about The Wolf Trial as one of your novels, but I'd mentioned right in the introduction of your very first novel, All the Little Guns Went Bang, Bang, Bang. Uh-huh. It's obviously set in a, a part of the world that you, you're from. Does that, yes. you know, that idea of first kind of write what you know, is that... Was that a way of getting into novels that you yeah. wanted to tell that story? Yes, it, it was. How did that idea come to me? Well, I mean, I grew up in a, a pretty tough working-class house in the state in a wee town called Antrim in Northern Ireland. It's near Belfast, but it's also in the Glens of Antrim. So you've got this, it lives in this weird kind of liminal halfway house world between urban horror and rural weirdness surrounded by strange myths and legends of banshees and ghosts but you know with the IRA and the UVF just to throw up of stones throw up the road although I grew up in a rough tough working class house estate I was quite lucky where I was smart enough to go to a, a grammar school I think people in Scotland sort of misunderstand what Irish grammar schools are you don't pay nobody pays to go to a grammar school in Northern Ireland you just simply get there by basically getting a scholarship you pass exams and that's how you get it I got in, in, into a grammar school and was, you know, had the benefits of a, a really, really, really good education. While a lot of the kids in the estates around me were, were, were not having a similarly lucky educational experience. And the older I got um, and the more my education opened my mind, the more attuned I was to what was going on around me. Not just in terms of the ridiculous, pointless hatred and violence on all sides, but just the waste of young lives and um, the treatment with which a lot of children were, you know, neglected and suffered in, in, in that period. I'm talking about the late 70s through to the mid 80s. I just wrote a column this week in, in praise of the smacking ban in Scotland because when I grew up, the violence against children by their parents and teachers was just far too common. This book basically tells the story of two kids 
who are pretty woefully treated by their parents and turn into a kind of preteen Bonnie and Clyde and go on a, a murder spree, kind of leveling the scores against all the baddies in the society around them, the, the abusive adults, the ghastly people in their society. I suppose in a way, I also covered some really quite appalling crimes as a reporter. I remember the Bulger case, the terrible case of the murder of the little boy, James Bulger, by Thompson and Venables. Now, this is one of, obviously one of the most distressing cases that Britain's ever had to um, witness and go through as a society. But one of the things that really struck me was, do you remember when the crowd of um, adults surrounded the police van outside the court in Bootle? Basically, they would have lynched those two 10-year-old boys. Now, those, what those two 10-year-old boys did is monstrous. Evil is a very difficult word. I examine the words evil throughout most of my work, whether it's non-fiction or fiction. So let's just park the word evil, but let's just say that what they did was uh, one of the worst crimes imaginable, you know, and uh, they deserved everything they got in terms of their period in prison and um, the horror which uh, the United Kingdom uh, received them. However, something terrible must have happened to those children to get to that point. No 10-year-old kid, boy or girl, wakes up one morning and decides to commit a ghastly murder against such an innocent child without something awful having happened to them. So what I was trying to explore in that book was what happens to the monsters in our society? How do they become monsters? We, as journalists and as consumers of news, we only arrive at the stage when people are already monsters. We don't see what happened to them. How did they become this? So what I was trying to explore was the genesis of evil. Again, I'm uncomfortable with that word, but a shorthand, let's use it. I was trying to explore the genesis of evil in the, in the young mind. I was also writing at the, at the period when there was a lot of obsession with so-called, again, I don't like this expression either, feral youth. Feral, it's really derogatory. It's like chav. You know, you know exactly what you're saying when you use those words. But we were looking at young people allegedly carrying out violent crimes. A lot of this stuff... You know, I've explored in, in, in journalism as well, you know, the absurdity of blaming things like the Columbine shooting on Marilyn Manson. Just how, how stupid is that? People don't shoot up their school because they listen to goth music. Shoot up their school because something dreadful happened to them. And who's responsible for that? Society, parents, the world we as adults have created. So that's what I was trying to explore in that book. I hope I phrased it properly. It's been a long time since I've written it. I think for me uh, as a writer, trying to understand the darkness in human beings is one of my central motivating factor. Might explain a lot of the books that I've picked for you as well, you know, from Dracula to, to Selby Jr. to Bukowski, Bellagno. All these books are exploring violence and often in particular male violence. One of the themes of my journalism along, along the way has often been what the hell is wrong with us as blokes? You know, it angers me that as half the population of the planet, we still as a group haven't really got our act together. Like, I know no one's saying women are perfect. That's not the argument. But there's, something, there's still something to miss in, in, a, in a large degree when it comes to the concept of masculinity that needs to be fixed. I remember, I think we're both about the same age. It was this uh, false forcing down of emotion that happened when, you know, in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s. Thank God that's going uh, because that does not make a man. It makes a basket case. You know, so hopefully we're on the way to fix it. But we still haven't. There's, there's a huge cultural hangover, I think, for masculinity. We need to redefine masculinity and what that means. And, you know, I'm trying a little bit throughout my life to do that. Yeah, because it's interesting on that particular subject. I think you're, you're right in terms of being able to express emotions. We have progressed. But I think a lot of that is tied in when you look at, you know, just a cursory glance at the shocking statistics of male suicide. Absolutely. In this country, which should be a, a national scandal amongst young, say, 18 to 40-year-old men. And part of that is still tied up with, you know, the, the male culture and the, the suppression of emotions and no outlet, no positive outlet for that. I very, I very much agree, Paul. I do think, not meaning to be trite or anything, 
But the absence of a strong interior life, I think, is a problem. I think if more young men read, I think reading, you know, we've always says broadens the mind, it improves the soul. And, you know, it is a cliche that women read a lot more fiction than men, sadly. If more men read fiction and inhabited the lives of others, you know, the lives of people who aren't like them, be it inhabiting the life of a woman or the life of a migrant or the life of, um, I don't know, anybody at all, just anybody who's not you, enriches you, lets you, lets you walk in another person's shoes. And once you walk in someone's shoes mentally, it's hard to leave them. It's hard to leave those shoes. So yeah, I think masculinity needs to find its interior life. I think we're, if we're finding it as men, I think we've still got quite a way to go as a journey. You've given people plenty of recommendations so far in the podcast, but now we come to the, to the book that you couldn't be paid to read again. The book that you've chosen is The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. Oh, I feel so bad now. I've been banging on about how important women in literature are that I've picked Iris Murdoch. He actually is one of our greatest writers. There, there's a certain irony, but you know, I'm, I'm just being honest. I haven't come on here for a party political broadcast. I've come, I've come to talk about culture and literature. So when you asked me, I had Iris Murdoch on my mind because I, had, I was trying to reread that book because someone had said to me they thought it was one of the greatest books ever written. I recalled reading it in, I think, my late 20s and just really not getting it or not, not not getting it, just not loving it. So I thought I'd give it a whirl and I, I just bloody hated it. Now, let me preface this. I, I would say there are a host of horrific male writers out there who should be just chucked in the bin. I mentioned Kerouac. Christ, I can't stand a word that that man ever wrote. And I don't really have anything nice to say about any of the beats. William Burroughs, what is that nonsense about? Yeah, he's kind of creepy cool and all that. But his writing's dreadful, right? So, but I kind of thought, well, this kind of stuff's predictable. Having a go at the beats, you know, or, or having a go at some blooming awful writer like Dan Brown, cash-in nonsense, you know. Iris Murdoch, I think, is worth talking about because she is a great writer. She's lauded with awards. Uh, she's revered, rightly so. But I just think The Sea, The Sea, which is held up as one of her greatest books, just doesn't work. It's, oh God, I hate using this word because it's not a proper critical word. It's just bloody boring. If you don't know the story, retired male actor retreats to the countryside in late years, cooks food, meets old lovers, acts like an arse, bores you to death. Nothing happens. The end. There's one bit in it, right? At the very beginning, there's this fantastically creepy bit. The first 100 pages, actually, first 150 pages are, are really brilliant. But then it just repeats itself. And there's this fantastic bit where the protagonist thinks he sees a sea monster off the coast of this little um, seaside home there where he lives. And you're like, is this a hallucination? Is this a, some weird metaphor? Is it a sea monster? Well, we never know. And it just is never resolved. It's pointless. And you're like, give me the sea monster. Give me, give me something. <laughs> Don't have this aunt continually cooking terrible food and boring on about his field relationships with women. Now, I suppose if we're talking about this idea of, you know, exploring gender in books, yeah, it is interesting because this guy is a quintessential male, bloody, misogynistic idiot. But it's just not engaging enough to bring that home to me. So yes, I admire Iris. I just don't really have much good to say about the sea, the sea. And the truth is, that I, it's hard for me to say any book isn't worth reading. Certain books I would never read again. I mean, I, I just wouldn't read the sea, the sea again. But there's no book really that isn't worth reading because it's the contents of a human mind. That human mind only lives on this planet for 70 years. And thank God that we've got this technology called the book that allows you to preserve it and allows you to physically, you're picking up a human soul, a human mind. And that's what's so, that's why I detest the screen culture that we live in. You know, I, I can't read a book and relate to it on a PDF or a bloody iPad. That's it's dead to me. 
literature is about human beings. We are physical creatures and the book is the nearest thing you can get to physically being with another human being's mind. So, so there's no such thing really as a bad book. There's lots of things that are bad books I wouldn't read again. It's interesting just on that subject. The most recent of the podcast, I spoke to Kathy Vincentbrink, who's just brought out a book part memoir called Dear Reader and it's all about the comfort and joy of books through her own story of how reading and books have just really helped her through some pretty tough times and pretty dark times in her life and you know in terms of as books as, as stories as you say of going into another world sometimes it's a bit of escapism it's a, it's a brilliant book but also what you said there reminded me I read a book recently called The Secret Life of Books by a guy called Tom Moe who's the a professor through in Edinburgh I absolutely love that because it's, it's wonderful, wasn't it? again touching what you were saying about that idea of the physical product, and it is even just more than just the ideas within it. Because sometimes it's you know if you give a book to someone, it says something about you, but it also says something about what you think of that person that you're giving the book to. It's just it investigates all those things, and he does it so brilliantly. When I spoke to Tom Mole about that, one of the things I thought was just beautiful is that idea of picking up an old book that nobody's picked up for years. You know, it could be your great granddad's book, or it might be a book you pick up in a charity shop, or you're browsing through one of those old beautiful bookshops in Wigton or somewhere, and there's marginalia in it. You know, someone's jotted something down. They're, they've been dead for 100 years, and that's their little thought. It's there forever that you've got. It's almost worth buying that book for that one thought that another human being had to preserve it. It's if we ever lose books, we're not human anymore. Although I've never, I, I, I mentioned to Cathy, I, I don't like writing in my books. Part of my career involves reviewing books and stuff. So I'll only, I only actually was able to start scribbling in books maybe in about the last five years when I realised, oh God, time's marching on. I've got to quickly, <laughs> I've got to make a note and remember that this is important to tell the reader about. So I tend to scribble maybe in books that I, that I haven't bought, that publishers have sent me to review because... I suppose there's a little bit of distance. I, when I buy a book, you know, it's mine and I want to keep it forever. You know, if it's a publisher or, if, you know, if you bought me a book as a present or my, a friend or my children or my wife or whoever, you want to keep that and cherish it because it means something. But a book that some of my publishers sent me for promoting their work, well, I don't mind scrubbing in that because it's kind of part of my day-to-day job. Yeah. But I still feel a guilt, bit guilty about it. I, I mentioned uh, as we go into the, the last category, which is either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading, and when I read the first two or three books and I'd won the Booker Prize and it was interesting even in that period from late 60s, early 70s, some of the language and oh the God, subjects yeah. and, you know, some of the books that you've mentioned here that you've been reading recently, things like, you know, some Sherlock Holmes, The 39 Steps, with John Buchan, Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King and then King Solomon's Minds. And I think, you know, when we were corresponding, you were saying they were just the best fun that a reader can have, although they are utterly politically incorrect in the, in the modern oh, they're era. They're, they're, I mean, they're scandalously bad. That is shocking. So there's two groups of books I'm reading at the moment. One is I'm reading a whole host of books which are about mythology. You know, like books that are trying to explain where myth comes from. I'm fascinated by that anthropologically, the idea of where does myth come from? What do these stories do for us? I'm reading a whole kind of smattering of books at the moment which are just amazing retellings of myth. So, you know, there's a great book out by uh, Natalie Haynes who you probably know best, most people know best as a stand-up comedian, but she's actually a, a classicist. She's a, a wonderful brain when it comes to the ancient Greeks and the, and the ancient Romans. She wrote a book called Pandora's Jar, which is taking the... Because again, this is all about great storytelling, which is why it kind of wraps up with the Victorian writers, the male Victorian writers I'm coming to. So Natalie Haynes has taken the classic myths, but retold them from a female perspective. So when we think of, for example, Medusa, right? You think of Medusa, she's a, a side character in the story of Perseus, who happens to lop off the evil Gorgon's head. But when you look at the story of Medusa, it's really, it's a terribly tragic story. Medusa herself was a beautiful woman. 
she was raped by Poseidon in the temple of Athena. Athena, instead of punishing her fellow god and relative Poseidon, decides to punish poor Medusa because the act of her being raped inside Athena's temple is seen as a defilement. So Athena then turns her into the snake-haired monster with the stare that can turn someone to stone. And what Natalie Haynes does is take that story and put it front and centre and say, look, is this not as important as this murderous Greek hero who swaggers around, you know, the Peloponnese? And she does that with Jocasta from the Oedipus myth. She does it uh, with Clytemestra, who is the wife of Agamemnon. And what, what Natalie Haynes is doing here is she's really putting a capstone, a keystone rather, on top of a kind of literary event that's been happening over the, the last few years where a number of female writers have been retelling these great adventure stories from ancient myths. So like Pat Barker did The Silence of the Girls, which told the story of Achilles and the Trojan War, but from the perspective of Briseis, who's a Trojan princess who's taken basically as a sex slave by the Greek commanders. Madeline Miller, uh, she retold the story of Odysseus from the eyes of Circe, who's the enchantress, who's a bit of a walk-on part in the Odyssey. You know, Odysseus rocks up on Circe's island, has an affair with her, and then hangs out for a while and then leaves her. What Madeline Miller does is tell that story from the, from the perspective of Circe. Really clever. So what you're taking is these great old adventure stories and giving them a completely new twist, which then leads me on to the Victorian adventure stories, which are, to me, equally as important in my life. I loved growing up with Norse myth and Greek myth and Celtic myths as well. The myths of Scotland and, and Ireland are just fantastic stuff, totally informed my interior world. But these Victorian stories as well, particularly as a boy of my generation, you know, in the 70s, you just grew up with this stuff. You imbibed it along with, um, you know, a Saturday afternoon in the park playing football. But Holmes, Kipling, I mean, who else did I put on the list? I think there was uh, John Buchan, the Scottish writer. These writers are just, their stories are incredible. You just, you can't put them down. They're just rollicking good reads. This is why they've lasted, like Dracula and why they will last, because although the sentiment in them has dated, the attitude towards race, the attitude towards women, the attitude towards basically anyone who isn't a white male who's part of the empire, that's steel. But the template for the adventure story is as great in them as it was in Homer. You know, you're never going to really get better adventure stories than The 39 Steps. There'll be no James Bond without The 39 Steps. Holmes, look, he, he is the template. We, we still see the Holmes-Watson uh, trope play out. The man who would be king, it's the ultimate adventure story. My God, it's a grotesque take on empire, race, women, you name it. It's like, Jesus, I can't believe that these things were thought back then. If you strip that out, if you're a sophisticated enough reader to be able to strip out that stuff and realise that, frankly, we're all part of our time, there'll be views. I like to think of myself as a nice liberal lefty, and I think surely so many of your uh, listeners will probably be nice liberal lefties as well. There'll be views for 100 years from now where our great-grandchildren think we're absolute brutes and barbarians. Let's be honest. You can never hold the past to the standards of contemporary now. It's, it, it's kind of not fair either. In fact, I wrote a piece about cancel culture lately when I was saying that, you know, for someone like me who's kind of championed political correctness my whole life, and, and you know, growing up like yourself in the 80s, fighting apartheid was part of our culture. Gay rights was part of our culture. You know, fighting those big fights in the, in the, for Generation X was huge. We, we, we were the generation that fought that. However, I think cancel culture is rendering itself a, a, you know, a little bit absurd when it looks back into the past and tries to cancel things that were said and done in a time when that was the standard that everyone lived by. I think of someone like my granny, a suffragette, 
a socialist, a champion of basically every blooming minority struggle you could think of back in the 30s and 40s. She didn't think of her race, herself as a racist, but I can think back and, and, and rehearse conversations I had with her about race at the time. She'd be marked down as a complete racist at the moment. You know, she spent her life railing against Jim Crow in America. She thought it was the, one of the greatest affronts to civilization ever. She could never understand why America was held up as a beacon of democracy when it labored under um, the racism that pervaded in, you know, the 20th century. Yet, how would she st- stand today in terms of, um, I hate that word woke, but let's use it as a shorthand, the, the kind of the woke view of the world. She'd be cancelled in a heartbeat. Um, so it's foolish that applying the standards of the past, applying the standards of now to the past is nonsense. And it also kills some great films uh, and it kills off great literature. Because I would think that if you, you know, like, that idea of revisiting those texts, and they have to be of their time. As you say, you have to be able to discern that. I mean, I'm not sure if people have ever gone back and tried to revisit the text in terms of almost sanitise it from, or clean out, or, or as you say, cancel all the things that would be unacceptable now. Well, if you think of something like, I'm thinking of like the early home stuff, like so a study in Scarlet or the sign of four. So a study in Scarlet, it's awful towards Mormons. I mean, it's terrible. You know, I'm no defender of organized religion, but the way the way Conan Doyle describes the, the Mormon faith is just unbelievable. And in the sign of four, his attitude towards some folk from India is just pretty, you know, reprehensible as well. But you literally couldn't tell those stories in that milieu. You couldn't tell it in a Victorian setting. You'd have to update it into the 20th, 20 or 21st century. In fact, the late 20th century or now to strip out those unpleasant views. I mean, think of something like Agatha Christie. Again, I've kind of been revisiting her of late as well. The reason I was revisiting this stuff is I was really ill over lockdown. I was hospitalized for a while. Not COVID, just a really, really bad illness. Not me for six. I'm recovering now, but I was, I was basically out of the game for the best part of three months, certainly two months. And I couldn't read anything heavy or too demanding. Simply, I was drugged up to the eyeballs and really, really ill. And I just needed light stuff. And I kind of thought I'll revisit those classic adventure stories of my youth, you know, from kidnapped and Treasure Island and all that kind of thing. And Agatha Christie was one of them. People have tried to sanitize Agatha Christie. Famously, she had a, a, a novel with a really, really, really inappropriate title that nobody could say these days. It's now called And Then There Were None, but its original title in the 1920s, late 20s or 30s, I think. I mean, you would get imprisoned today if you used that language in the street. Again, a great, marvelous writer setting the template when it comes to the modern detective story. A, a writer who, you know, you think of that book in particular, which is now called And Then There Were None, it's almost establishing a, a certain genre. You know, the locked room horror movie that we see so often? A group of people stuck in a house and something terrible happened. She invented it with that book. But the language in it is just completely inappropriate. But, you know, Christy, again, I revisited her. The hypnotic prose that she has, just the rattling pace of storytelling. All these folk, we, we can't forget them. We need to realize we, we should go back to them. We need to go back to them because culture, they're important. We wouldn't have our culture now if they hadn't written, for example, and even in something very mundane, like you wouldn't have James Bond without John Buchan's The 39 Steps. Some people will say, well, oh, good, I hate James Bond, but I'm not a fan of Bond either. I don't like Fleming. For the very reasons we're talking, I hate his misogyny and all that kind of stuff. I hate all that posh empire slapping on the back nonsense that Fleming comes out with. But let's be clear, Bond is one of the biggest literary franchises it's ever been. It's totemic in culture. So without Buck and you wouldn't have Bond. You know, without Bond, you wouldn't have 
so many of the thriller, you know, the born identity stuff and all that, all these Mission Impossibles and blah, blah, blah. So we need to recognize, we need to give these older Victorian and Edwardian writers, we need to give them their place for what they did culturally. But when we return to them, which we should, because I think there's a lot to learn when it comes to writing and storytelling. There's not much to learn apart from in the reverse of their politics. But when we go to them, park your 2020 sensibilities. You know, we can all do that. You know, we can all realize, look, when you read Beowulf, you're not advocating that we should all live in the Anglo-Saxon, in an Anglo-Saxon village. When you read Homer, you're not advocating that the, a form of democracy that we live under shouldn't give the women women the vote the way they did in Athens in the five, in 500 BC. It's, it's just absurd to incorporate that kind of thinking into an appraisal of past culture. It's just, just silly and, and really, really detrimental because we'll lose so much. You know, it's like you, we can't create memory holes where we throw past culture down because it doesn't quite accord with our current view of the world. Um, much as that current view of the world's really good that we now live in a world where we're getting ourselves together when it comes to race and gender and minority rights and all that. Because it's interesting even, you know, just from what we've been talking about before, in terms of the comfort and joy of books, the appeal of them in certain times and, you know, the fact that you, as you said, you chose them at a particular period, you know, when you, when you were ill and they obviously brought some sort of solace or comfort as well in terms of being able to read them at the time. They're, they're the ultimate escapism. They're just, you know, I don't, I hate to say this about myself and I've never really thought about myself as this type of reader. But when I was ill, I was this type of reader. I didn't want to have to think too hard. I wanted to get away from the physical pain that I was in and get away from the kind of existential misery of being trapped in hospital for ages. And these kind of writers just, they provide that. It's a, it's a movie playing in your head, you know? It's like um, having a rather politically incorrect uncle who you're still really fond of because he's just great fun to be around. But, you know, you wish he wouldn't talk about Donald Trump and Brexit. That, that is a good analogy with which to, to draw the, the podcast to an end. Neil, it's been, it's been absolutely brilliant sitting talking to you about uh, some of your favourite books and, and obviously the C the C as well as uh, your not-so-favourite book. Thank you very much. Absolutely delighted um, to join you, Paul. Good fun, great crack and a lovely chat. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.